In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. At the heart of every ordination, there's an echo of this call and response. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Here I am. Send me. God, the creator of the universe, has issued a call. And Rob, our dear brother and friend, frail and fragile as we know he is, has accepted it. Here I am. Send me. You know, the scriptures record a number of these moments. We begin with Abraham, caught up in the chaos of a scattered and confused world. He was given his marching orders to leave all that was familiar and head for a land that he had never seen. But he did go with a promise. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So off he went and we have all been blessed. And then there's Moses. An 80-year-old man living in exile, working as a shepherd, caring for the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Not a very impressive life career when you consider the promise of his early years. He'd been miraculously preserved at birth, grew up in the privileged courts of the mighty Pharaoh. Later he killed an Egyptian and became a fugitive sojourner in the land of Midian. But God had not forgotten him. The angel of the Lord manifests God's presence in a burning bush, and God calls to Moses, Moses, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have come to rescue them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And as you may recall, Moses needed a little more encouragement to accept God's call and move out. But eventually he went and his world and ours were forever changed. And then there's the call of Jeremiah. He was also hesitant about his qualifications, even tries to argue with the Lord. It doesn't go well, never does. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, oh, Lord God. Truly, I did not know how to speak, for I'm only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And so off he goes. Now, not every call is as dramatic but there's always this underlying dialogue. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. Now for my own call, the voice I heard did not come from a burning bush, uh, but from the far end of a New Haven railroad car. 
the train that I rode every day to and from New York City, where I worked for Mobile Oil. That night, the train was packed, standing room only, but we still followed the strict convention that no one spoke out loud. This was pre-mobile phones. But this man dared to speak out loud, and his words were plaintive. I have retired today, and I don't know what I'll do with the rest of my life. And his voice echoed through the train, and most people ignored him. But his words stayed in my head for weeks afterwards. I couldn't ignore them. I knew one thing. I did not want to be that man. I didn't want to spend, to invest my life in a career that would leave me empty 40 years later. What do you want me to do? I asked the Lord. And over the next few months, it became clear that God was calling me to leave the corporate world and take on the challenge of ordained ministry. I was not convinced I was ready. Like Jeremiah, I tried to argue with God. I lost the argument but was given the most amazing adventure that I could have ever imagined. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am. Send me. Now today's scripture passage from Isaiah 6 includes a description of Isaiah's call, but much more besides that I want to consider with you. Let me set the context. People have been mocking God for too long. They had taken his name in vain, had ridiculed his apparent slowness to intervene in the world. They had called evil good and good evil. They had boasted of their own cleverness, especially the academics who loved to flaunt their so-called knowledge. Alcohol abuse was rampant and corruption was rife, even among the government officials whose job it was to enforce the law. No, I'm not reading from today's newspaper. I am simply paraphrasing the last few verses of Isaiah chapter 5. And yet the description is disturbingly relevant for today. So the Lord's anger burned against his people. His hand was raised, ready to strike them down, but he withheld his judgment, giving them one more opportunity to turn back to him. And God did this by appearing to a young man who was worshipping in Solomon's temple. His name was Isaiah, and the time was around 70, 740 B.C., the year that King Uzziah died. If our Bible is near you, I encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, where you'll see this encounter described in some of the most beautiful prose ever written. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now notice how he gives us the details of his experience. And we even have the moment in history when Isaiah was confronted with the living reality of God. There's, there was none of the vague euphemisms that cloak so much of our contemporary Christian experience. Isaiah saw the Lord, and he knew it. He saw the Lord seated on the throne high and lifted up, and his train, his royal robes, filled the temple. What an amazing experience. You know, I can still recall the first time I glimpsed something of the holy otherness of God. 
I was an 11-year-old Baptist boy, and it was our monthly practice to have Boy Scout Parade. And this particular Sunday, we were going to visit, for my very first time, a high Anglican church that used lots of incense, sanctus spells, vestments, even red copes, all kinds of things, and solemn chants. And I was blown away. I'd never witnessed anything like it. I knew that there was something different, something supernatural going on. But that was nothing compared to the experience of Isaiah. Look at what happened next. Above him, above the Lord, were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. Now, this is the only time that seraphs are mentioned in the Bible. And they appear to be angelic beings of tremendous splendor who serve the Lord with great humility. Notice how they cover their faces before the Lord. They also seem to correspond to the living creatures described in the book of Revelation to John. They also have six wings and sing the same song of praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the same song, by the way, that we sing still. And we call it the Sanctus. And we sing it as part of our Eucharistic celebration. And of course, as you well know, the triple repetition is the Hebrew way of underscoring the infinite holiness of God. And then, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Don't you wish you'd been there? Mm. There's also a reminder of the time when God spoke at Mount Sinai. Remember how that went? The mountain shook, not just the building, and was covered with smoke, and the people of Israel were terrified, and so was Isaiah, and so would you be. But Isaiah's response fascinates me. It's far more than simple fear. Look at his words. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. You see, when Isaiah was confronted with the infinite holiness of God, he's also brought face to face with his own uncleanness. Now, friends, personal holiness is not a very popular subject for teaching and preaching these days. We're far more comfortable with a, a kind of relativistic culture of which we're all contributing members. Let's face it. It's much more comforting to compare ourselves with the people around us. We can always look down on somebody. Rather than with God's standards. Because from his point of view, we don't look so good. And that's why we all squirm when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect or, or be holy. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a high calling. And we're all called to personal holiness according to God's standards. That's why we begin with Isaiah on our knees saying, Woe to me, or, or Lord, have mercy. They're not simply phrases that we parrot. It's an expression of where we stand before Almighty God. And notice that the first area where Isaiah feels convicted is in the use of his mouth. Don't ever underestimate the power of your words. We're all people of unclean lips. 
And we live in a society of people with unclean lips. And we all need help. You know, one of the great privileges of ordained ministry is the opportunity to preach the word of God to the people of God. It can be a terrifying responsibility. Because we're actually daring to speak in the name of God. And our words can have eternal consequences in the lives of the people to whom we speak. You know, sermons are not merely TED Talks or chats or commentary on the, the news of the day. But they're intended to be a supernatural moment where people can encounter the life-giving word of God through our words. Rob, don't ever take this privilege lightly or reluctantly. A man called Terry Fulham, some of you have heard of him, was one of my mentors. He was a professor of biblical studies at Barrington College in Rhode Island before becoming rector of St. Paul's Church in Darien, Connecticut, where we were blessed to serve and worship. He was a brilliant preacher with an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. And one of his memory, many memorable one-liners was, never stroll reluctantly to the pulpit, always run expectantly. There's nothing more important. And good preaching takes time. Time for prayer, time for preparation. Terry told me to expect to spend an hour in the study for every minute in the pulpit. And over the years, I found it to be a useful guide. And Rob, there's something else about your words that you will quickly learn. As an ordained person, you are a representative person. You represent Jesus. You represent the church in its widest sense and also your own congregation, this congregation. You even speak for the diocese of which you are a part and... The bishop under whose authority you're ordained to serve. It's a little overwhelming at times. But it's something that you must learn and relearn. And read the epistle of James if you need convincing. You know, as a bishop, I continue to be surprised and sometimes alarmed by the way in which people give more weight to my words than I intend. Perhaps you've noticed I still enjoy the, the heritage of my English humor. And I find humor in all kinds of things. But I have to learn to be careful because there's power to my words. And for this reason, I'm a very reluctant user of social media. A thoughtless word can easily become viral and circle the globe before you can explain yourself more carefully. I also have to watch the ever-changing array of acronyms for a long time, Angela and I thought LOL mean lots of love. If one of our grandchildren corrected us, it didn't come across well. So watch your words and be careful of those acronyms, Rob. But help is available. So let's go back to Isaiah. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which had taken with tongues from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And in this dramatic picture, we are brought face to face with the fact that we cannot atone for our own sins. 
We cannot take enough personal growth classes or read enough self-improvement books. If we are to be made right with God, all of us know that we're not right. Then we'll have to be willing to accept God's action on our behalf. And the call that was taken from that altar was a preview of what Jesus would do for each one of us on the cross of Calvary. In the shedding of his blood, there is forgiveness for our sins. And this forgiveness is the first step in purifying our hearts, cleaning up our lips, and preparing us for lives of service. And that graphic act of atonement is also part of the drama of the Eucharist. Because in those simple elements of bread and wine, we are proclaiming the Lord's atoning death until he comes again. Rather, another dimension to your ordained ministries, presiding at Holy Communion. Never take it lightly. Doesn't matter how many times you presided, it is always an awesome responsibility. You know, I served at Truro Church for nearly 17 years, and we had a large church, and so we needed a lay Eucharistic minister to assist us. I always would do the instruction for them. I would always remind them that when they serve people the bread or the wine, they must always remember that they were part participants in a supernatural transaction and to properly prepare themselves. And the same is true for you. Rob, take time to pray before and after you serve. It's a sacred moment. Finally, Let's look at the last verse of our text. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. One reason I love that passage, and I hope you've got it marked and underlined and the page worn, because this particular passage really is a template of true biblical worship. First of all, Isaiah confronts the holiness of God. You know, when you come to worship, you're not coming to hang out with your buddies. Yeah, you'll do that as well. But you are coming deliberately into the very presence of Almighty God. But when you do that, you must recognize your own unworthiness. And then Isaiah accepts God's forgiveness. And in grateful response, he offers his life. See, that's biblical worship. And it's always incomplete without the fourth step, a personal response to the call to serve. Now, today we are focusing, as we should, on Rob, who is to be ordained. But we must always remember that the church doesn't only need more clergy. It needs more mothers and fathers, politicians, lawyers, actors, musicians, teachers, businessmen and women who know that they have been called by the Lord into their particular vocation. Men and women who will prayerfully look for all kinds of creative opportunities to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ in their daily lives at home and at work. The Lord is looking for men and women who will follow the example of Isaiah 
who having encountered the Holy Lord in worship and are willing to acknowledge their own unworthiness, receive God's forgiveness, and then are willing to go serve him in the world. But Rob, I've got one more thing for you. Would you please stand, Rob? I've got a special word for you. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have Itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Amen? amen. By the way, amen doesn't mean, oh dear, he's almost finished. And I do, I am almost finished. <laughs> Amen means, yes, I agree. Amen? Amen. Mm. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you and I bless you. That you've called Rob to be your servant. Bless him, Lord. Bless Tammy. May their lives be a testimony to your grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.